You need three things in every story, pretty much. You need a person or a character, and then they have to inhabit a place, and they need an obstacle or an objective or something that they are aiming for. I always think of it as we've got this huge sack in front of us as parents, as educators, you know, as adults, and we just have to rummage a bit to remember. And I hope what my book does is just lets people rummage and go, ah, oh, yes, I, oh yeah, and I don't do it quite like that, but I do it this way. I was the general manager of the Shaftesbury Theatre. French and Saunders were doing their, I think it was, I think it was French and Saunders Live, really nervous. And I went in and I probably said very little other than, oh, hello, nice, welcome, welcome, my name's, Bubble Lodge, uh, and you're really welcome. I'm the general manager here, and please let me know if you need anything. And one of them turned to the other and said, hmm, Bubble, now there's a name. A little while later, and I'm still called Bubble, and Ab Fab comes out. Welcome to Bestsellers. I'm Natalie Jameson. And I'm Phil Williams, and we are joined today by a writer who Natalie Jameson's brought to the table. But um, am I right to say not necessarily because you read her work to start with, but you watched her perform? Yeah, that's correct. I did. I saw her in a theatre performance this summer in 2023, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But yeah, Dania Miller, she's just one of those people that I think if she comes into your life through her writing, through her performances, she's been performing for a really long time. I'm very late to the Dania Miller party. But if she does come into your life in some way, you kind of just want to hang out there for a little bit. So I was intrigued when she has written a book. So I wanted to find out more about it. So I was intrigued when you gave me the book because um, the book pertains to be about storytelling, but it's fiction as well. So when you first gave it to me, I thought, oh, right, is this a nonfiction guide to then how to write a story? Is that what this is? But no, it's it's cleverer than that. It's It's a story about storytelling. Exactly. Yeah. It's seven secrets of spontaneous storytelling. And it's, yeah, as you say, there's a fictional story at the heart of this. It's not a particularly long book, but with each chapter giving away one of these secrets of how to tell stories in an effective and meaningful way. Dania kind of just shows how we can all do that, whether you're a parent, whether you're a grandparent, whether storytelling is something that could work in other areas of your life, you know, in your workplace. I think it's just kind of one of those things where it's not just about sitting down and opening a picture book maybe and, and reading it to a, a toddler. There's so much more going on here and Daniel will get into that. And it's it's fascinating. I love this conversation. I really hope everyone else does too. So this is a new writer to you perhaps, and it's Daniel D-A-N-Y-A-H Miller. Although, as you'll hear in this, we also discover her real name too. Here's Natalie with the full formal introduction. Our guest today on Bestsellers is a storyteller. She has worked across theatre. She's got quite a background in theatre, which I am very intrigued to know more about. She's created workshops for children, uh, which she performs around the world. I was incredibly lucky to go see her adaptation of Michael Morpurgo's I Believe in Unicorns in a theatre in London in this, in this summer. So we're recording this, it's uh, November 2023. So in the summer of 2023, I got to take my 10-year-old to that. And we'll talk about that in a minute because it was quite a transformational experience. It was brilliant. And Dania Miller has now written her very first 
book. It's called Seven Secrets of Spontaneous Storytelling. And I am so happy that she's joined us on Bestsellers. Dania, hi. Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Let's start with just storytelling in general. Where did it grab you first? Because it seems like your entire creative life has been around telling stories, but in such a such an informed and conscious way, which isn't isn't how a lot of us operate. Yeah. So I mean I I was always told as a kid to stop telling tales. You know, there are there are a lot of us around, aren't there? And I invented all sorts of things and I was always telling tales. But I think also at school, I got into a lot of trouble for talking too much in class. And Me too. Did you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, same. Yeah. Uh, all the time. Yeah. Uh, so many people relate to that, don't they? And And I just think to myself sometimes when I go into schools and share storytelling, um, I'm told by teachers sometimes, oh, they might be trouble or they might be this or they, you know, because as a teacher, you need to hold the class, don't you? But I often think to myself, oh, they're the storytellers then. They're the, they're the ones that are going to be right up front. They're the ones that are going to help me to create whatever mischief we're going to create today. And um, I didn't realise that there was such a thing as a storyteller. So having been told off all my life for talking too much, maybe a bit like you guys, you've now found a way to make a profession out of it, to be paid to talk. Yeah. yeah. And that's genuinely what I, I love. And, and I think Phil and I have spoken about this before as well, but working in radio, especially for pretty much my entire professional life, it's because I love having conversations. I love like hearing other people's stories and and you ne- you never know what somebody's going to say. And that's that's really exciting, actually. Totally agree with you. And I often say that we have two ears and one mouth and we should use them in that ratio. And this is a lifelong ambition for me because <laughs> I, I definitely over talk. Um, but <laughs> listening to stories is incredible, isn't it? And listening for stories. So with spontaneous storytelling, I always say, those stories don't come from us. We just hear them. You know, they're on the wind or they're in the water or they're in the fire. And if we just listen, then we'll hear the stories. So the legendary Barry Cryer said the same thing about jokes. Did he? Yeah, so that he never really actually wrote a joke himself. But his... I don't know if you're familiar with his work, Daniel, but he's really telling of the, the parrot jokes and he's got a collection of parrot jokes. But the way Barry tells them, and this is why I've mentioned it in relation to your work, do, do you think everybody can be a storyteller or actually are some people just gifted with the way they reel you in when they're telling you a joke or a story? So I believe we are all storytellers. I think it's how we make sense of the world. I'm really interested in that about Barry Cryer, so you have to tell me a bit more. But for me, we are naturally storytelling beings. We naturally want to understand the world. We want a beginning, a middle and end. If we're not told the whole story, like you just told me half a story there about Barry mm. Cryer and mm. I want to know more, mm-hmm. I can I can go and start making it up for myself, right? Because I want it, I want the conclusion, if you like. So Where I feel that storytellers who, you know, like you two or like me on stage, we then start to build the craft of storytelling or the craft of interviewing or the craft of uh, reviewing or whatever it is, that craft. And then you have this sort of triangle, don't you, where you have the story that wants to be told or is emerging, yourself as a natural storyteller, 
and then the craft that you build from mastery. And in the center of that triangle is where the magic happens, the alchemy. Yeah, because certain parts of a story, I suppose more so related to jokes, but certain parts need to be embellished, don't they? And you learn as you tell them where you get the reaction. So if you kind of need to act out a part of a story, you learn to do that on the next telling of it rather than yeah. just going, God, did you hear what happened the other day? Blah, blah, blah. And Natalie said this and, and just, you know what I mean? Yes. And things like the pauses. Was it um, George Martin, who who was the producer for the... For the Beatles, yeah. Who's, I think he said, because uh, my, my business partner and husband worked with him, and he said, silence is perfect. If you're going to interrupt it, make sure it's worth interrupting <laughs> something like that he probably said it much more eloquently than me but that's one of the oldest tricks in our game isn't it Nat? is to if you're doing an interview and especially if it's a difficult interview daniel don't rush to fill the silence wait no. for the guest to fill it and just see no. what they've got just see if they're gonna you know because people don't like we don't like silence if the three of us were in a room now sharing a drink together and it dried up we'd all be very awkward all, almost <laughs> instantly our spines would straighten and one of us would go, oh, oh, so how's that? And then we'd end up talking over each other. And it's a scene you see in rom-coms all the time, isn't it? Where couples first meet and they talk over each other. Oh, after you. No, you go first. No. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and I think that that's where we can use this skill of listening more. When I'm working with adults, training adults in storytelling and the craft of storytelling, I will often say, if you've got a question and they'll ask me, you know, what about this? And I'll say, well, why don't we live with that question? Because as soon as you answer something you can put it down and move on can't you but if you don't and, we, and we, we're in a world where we feel like we have to answer things quite quickly and, and and have a proper answer and complete it but if we live with the question then it can begin to percolate down it can it can live in us we can interrogate it more and I think again that's where the the jewel is that's where the treasure is is in the waiting. So it's a bit like you're saying. So can we go back to... Yeah, do you, uh, do you want one of Barry's parrot stories? I do. <laughs> okay. I'm always amazed how you can remember these. Like, I can never remember stuff remember. like that. No. So a guy goes to the pet shop and he buys this brand new parrot, this talking parrot, and he gets it home. And after a few days, he's kind of slightly perplexed because this parrot's very sweary, right? And this guy's got kids in the house. He doesn't want the kids hearing the swear words. And one day, this parrot's unleashing a foul-mouthed tirade. So he takes the parrot out of the cage, and he looks it square in the eye, and he says, if you can't learn to stop swearing, I'm going to have to put you in the fridge to cool you down, mate. And the parrot says, yeah, go. F so he says, right. Puts the parrot in the fridge, shuts the fridge door, sets the timer for five minutes. After five minutes, he opens the fridge door, and the parrot's shivering in the fridge. And he says, right, have you learned your lesson? Can I trust you to stop swearing now? And the parrot goes, yes. And he goes, good. Any questions? And the parrot says, what on earth did that chicken do? <laughs> and does he say that they, these these ideas come to him? That he No, he says that they're just around. You just, you hear them and it's like they're in the, what you said, they're in the breeze the whole time. And you know, there's a mate of mine, Jim, who's got a thousand and one jokes like this. And you know, I said to him, oh, that's brilliant. Who's told you that? He said, I can't remember. I, said, I think I heard it somewhere the other day. And it's kind of, so that's the, the, the point. Is it's, This isn't like, um, plagiarism it's not like oh that's one of jimmy carr's gags it's not that it's that these are almost apocryphal tales that are passed down through yeah. generations 
that's exactly what storytelling is, isn't it? Yeah. And it starts at school. Going back to what you said, it starts mm. at school, doesn't it? And, and you kind of, you'll have that one kid who comes in like Jay from the in-betweeners who comes in and goes, you know what? My dad played football with Beckham last night. And he, that clearly didn't happen. But then he'll tell you a very elaborate story of how his dad has supposedly played football with David Beckham. And then that goes around the school. You heard that kid in the 3C, apparently his old man plays football with Beckham. And it just grows legs. Yeah. And we've been, we've been passing stories down orally you know, for thousands of years, haven't we? And if you look at some of the folk tales and fairy tales, you can find them across the globe in all different forms. And I just love that when you find stone soup, for example, which is a, a folk, folk tale which comes from East Europe, but it also comes from China and it comes from Africa and there are different versions of it. How did that happen? Before the written word, oh, I just get so excited by that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's magical. And, and we'll obviously dive into the book in more detail soon. But just to mention the play that I saw that Dania did in the summer, and I got to take Elliot, and I've mentioned this to Dania before already, but I'll let you know, Phil, too, yeah. and everyone listening, obviously. It was a really nice summer's day in London, and, you know, you're trying to do those nice things with the kids, and... I've been lucky enough because I was intrigued to read Dania's book and um, got to go see the the stage play she was doing, the adaptation of the Michael Morpurgo story. And Elliot was a bit like, what's it going to be like? I don't know anything about this. Who is it? And that sort of, he really loves stories and he loves going to things. He's quite open to that. But we sort of turned up and it's, there is a beautiful set for this show, but it's, a one woman show. So it's Dania on stage and you can kind of see like Elliot's like, is it just going to be somebody with a book, like telling a story? What's it going to be? It sort of starts with Dania goes around the audience and she's chatting to some of the parents and children and, and just asking them about stories and, and books they've read and things. And I think in his head, Elliot was a bit like, is this going to be like school? Like, what are they, are they going to try and teach me something? What's it going to be? And then she starts telling a story and they are locked in like that entire audience. And it was kids of all ages, really little ones. Like, you know, there was the initial kind of rustle of snacks and all that kind of thing. And then it just slowly dies down. And it's one woman on stage telling a story, but in such an enigmatic way that that entire audience was transfixed. That must be quite something for you to witness as well, Dania, being on stage and seeing that change in a group of people before you yes it is it's very humbling that it's the power of story isn't it that actually I always before I come on stage just ask for the story to come through me and for me to offer it as a gift to the audience and of course it isn't just me on stage although it appears you know it is a solo show but we created it Danny Parr the director the designer Kate Bunce, who's, you know, they're both phenomenal, uh, lighting designer, sound designer, projection designer. So when I'm on stage, it's with all of those books, mm -hmm. I have a feeling of, of being amongst all my friends. And then uh, maybe this is the difference for me between an actor and a storyteller, if there is one, is that the actor will inhabit a role and then often there's a fourth wall, so the audience isn't necessarily part of it. Whereas as a storyteller, I feel like I stay as me and then go out and in to character, but also have that connection with the audience. 
And that's crucial for me because we're on that journey together. So as everything emerges out of the book, out of the book stacks, out of the books, it is really magical, isn't it? And, I, and it's really finely choreographed. So yeah, just to finish that that tale as well. So you, you yeah. kind of go in there and you can see the, the kids are a bit restless and then they all just get so into that story. And, you know, it's it's a beautiful story just about the the power of words and the power of books. And, you know, it brings in atrocities in the war and book burning and all this kind of thing it's really powerful and at the end Elliot was like he didn't want to leave the theatre to start with because he didn't want the magic to be broken as he put it and he was like I don't think we're going to see anything as good as that are we he's like we're done <laughs> like that that was that was great uh and he still talks about it months later wow wow and what a privilege isn't it yeah. to affect an audience in that way and I do have people who, because it was the 10th anniversary, which is why we came back into the West End um, for a third time. And I hear people who say, we saw this 10 years ago and we still talk about it as a family and we still love it. And uh, yeah, it's it's an incredible feeling. So the seven secrets of spontaneous storytelling is to try and share that. I, I, I kind of really, there's a, such a sense of generosity in how you've written the book because you want other people to be able to experience that on a, on a really local level within their families. Definitely. I've seen how much stories can transform um, individuals, but then also groups and families who maybe struggle or, you know, just caught up in their everyday lives my family where we would have difficulties we were um, um i had a stepson uh, and a daughter they had quite a, a gap in age between them and we were a blended family and um luke my stepson's mum and i get on very well but actually it can be challenging can't it to be a mum to be a stepmom to be a dad how to how to relate and stories can really help us with those things so yes i absolutely in my book wanted to share some of the tips tricks experiences that I have but also I felt like I'd be copping out if I didn't do it as a story but one of the things that uh, comes across in the book is that um, Adam the father lacks a confidence to, to do this at first and to try this and Natalie just gave the example of of all the crisp packets rustling and the kind of skepticism from her own son so you clearly have that innate confidence that, you know, I don't care. When I walk out, I know I'm going to get them. I'm going to get these kids, right? But how do you try and imbue that into other parents? I mean, I've kind of, I'm all right with it. You know, I've done it with my seven-year-old. And what we do at bedtime is he goes, Dad, can you do a made-up story? So I go, yeah, what's it about tonight? He says, it's about a woman called Arthmina. And he's made up this name. And I said, right, and what what what's she like to describe her? Oh, she's massive, Dad. Uh, but she loves flying airplanes. Right, those are my only parameters. Yeah, right, okay, boom, and I'm off. Now, I don't care if it's rubbish or not, because invariably it will make him laugh. But I would imagine some people go, oh, where do I start? What's my starting point? Mm -hmm. So what's your advice for those people listening to this? You know, this sounds great and magical. I'd love to try it, but my stories will be rubbish. Yeah. I, I think the major, I my final chapter is about confidence, and I say in it, actually, it should be the first chapter as well as the last chapter because it all it's all about confidence and there are some things that you can do like you're saying your son gave you those suggestions and then my first three secrets in the book one of them is imagination and imagination is 
definitely a muscle. So the more we use it, the better we become. The second one is the senses. So we have what we have around us, not just what we see, but what we smell, what we taste, what we touch and what we hear. So we can use those in stories to enliven stories. But then the third one is about memory. So we can use our own memories and our own looking out into the world and then starting from that point. So cloud watching is a brilliant one. So your son gave you a starting point, a stimulus of a person, and then you ask a question. So you could have in the show that I that I do, um, I believe in unicorns, um, we do a silly spontaneous story in the middle of that. And I ask for a place, a person and an object. And actually, the more challenging any of those three are, as you know, because the more challenging you get a character, the easier it is to tell a story. Yeah. And I think it's about failing. It's about the bonding of it, because there's no such thing as making up a bad story. It, it, it's just something. Well, the, that's the line I use most him. often with my son is he says, yeah. uh, sometimes he's been known to say, but dad, it doesn't go like that. I said, yeah. it does in my story. Ah, uh, do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah. I say, if you've got a different story, let's hear it. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. When he says it doesn't go yeah. like that, you go, oh, yeah. how does it go? How does it go in your story then? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's lovely, isn't it? Because it's a connection. That's what's important. Yeah, and that spark. So these seven secrets, are they your secrets? Have you been taught them or have you learned them along the way? And if we asked any of our other authors for their seven secrets, would they be the same as yours or might they differ? Whoa, great question. Thank I you. mean, I think, I think we'd have different secrets, wouldn't we? I don't, it's a bit, let's go back to, to what you were saying was they, they're there, they're just there, aren't they? They're all there. And it's how we individually distill the knowledge, the information, the experience that we have that makes them form in a certain way. But these, they sort of belong to everyone, don't they? Our senses belong to everyone, our knowledge. Knowledge there are certain comes. formulas, though, aren't there? I mean, you, yeah. you've been telling stories for a long time, so you know now what the key ingredients are for that story to have a hook. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I came up with an idea of pop stories, um, and that comes from you need three things in every story, pretty much. You need a person or a character. Yeah, it doesn't have to be a person, but I call it a person, a character. And then they have to inhabit a place. And they need an obstacle or an objective or something that they are aiming for. So it, I've put them in the wrong order. You see, I'm dyslexic. Um, so it's P-O-P. And then you pop them all together, which is your second P, and you get the plot. Now, different people will call it different things, but it's the same. Person, an object and a place. A place, yeah. pop. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we should just say but at this point, uh, interrupt this to say that uh, when Dania referenced her dyslexia a few moments ago, um, she told us before we started speaking to you that that's quite uh, that's a relatively new diagnosis for you, which um, how has that been to, to discover, to live with, especially when you consider that words are your tool? Mm. I love words. I love the way they sound. I love listening to other people's words. I love accents. But when I was growing up, you know, dyslexia wasn't a thing. It had been discovered and understood but nobody really talked about it, mentioned it, you know, it, was, it had no traction at all. And so 
I relatively late recently have started to put some of my experiences of growing up on of being an adult together to go, oh, hang on a minute. This is potentially why. Yeah. And I I'm really interested in the question of where the line is between a label limiting us and a recognition of something liberating us. I'm, I'm really interested in that. So, so these days, as a parent of a seven or four-year-old, Natalie's children are a bit older. What's interesting is that the stigma has been removed because if you can attach a label, it can unlock further resources within the classroom. Hmm. So actually, rather than just being that disruptive, naughty kid in the corner that can't shut up, um, that person might be this or might be that. I would, therefore, then we can get some additional support for that student. So actually, that's something that you wouldn't have had as a girl in a classroom. No. And I think it's um, there's quite a lot of research that suggests that girls uh, mask more than boys. Um, and therefore, even now with diagnosis, are less likely to be diagnosed. I mean, they speak about how girls will go into a dream world and be more quiet, more silent. That was definitely not me. <laughs> I definitely went to um, the loud, noisy place. Um, but yeah, I, I do wonder, um, would I, what, what would have been different? Would I have come to storytelling sooner? Would I have become a stand-up comic? You know, would I have had the courage to explore further? Who knows? I have to come back again. <laughs> Although next time I want to be an acrobat. <laughs> <laughs> With that in mind then, so you you had a long career working in theatres. Do you think that was perhaps a, a way you got around it to still be around stories and be around storytelling? Maybe because you didn't feel like you could that was your route in basically. Can you just talk a little bit about what you did and, and who you worked with? Yeah, so I um, when I was at uni, I was at Breton Hall College and National Student Drama Festival came to um, Breton and it, it came several times and I got involved in that. And my first role, I think it was um, self-penned role of dog's body. Uh, and I just <laughs> helped wherever I was needed. And I wanted to be on stage I wanted to be an actress that's what I thought I wanted to be and I always felt like I'd failed because I wasn't any good at being somebody else and I couldn't inhabit a role and I really admire people who can I just think it's phenomenal but I that wasn't who I was and so I got into administration because I came to London and went Oh, I was doing some sort of telesales. Did you do something naff when you first started? <laughs> oh, my goodness. And I lasted till lunchtime. And I was opposite the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. I just thought, I can't do this. And I left at lunchtime. I, in fact, I, I left my jumper. It's still there. My jumper's still there. And I went across the road. And I went round to the stage door. And I said, have you got any jobs? And the Chief Alex wasn't in. And the, and the Master Carpenter wasn't in. They weren't there because they were on lunch. And they said, nobody's here. And I couldn't wait. So I went round front of house and I was talking to the box office when the theatre manager, who was a wonderfully flamboyant Billy Roberts, came down the stairs. And he really did, you know, majestically come down the stairs. And he said, darling, come, come and talk to me. And uh, I started as an usher at, at Theatre Audrey Lane. And I hadn't, they hadn't had any other female managers at all. So I was selling programmes and ice creams 
I've got, I've got, how long have we got? I can't. As long as you want, as long as you want. I've got a tennis sale story for you in a minute. So you go first. Oh yeah. Okay. Now I I mustn't interrupt myself. And um, so he championed me to be the first female manager for this big theatre company, who was the biggest theatre owners. And then I got pulled down the administration, theatre management, marketing route. But I always wanted to be closer to the art. I always wanted to be closer to the art. So I then went out into the regions, but still in management. And then one day, and I've told this story many times, but one day I was holding my daughter in my arms. She was a tiny baby. And I just looked down at her and I thought, there's only one thing I want for her, and that is that she follows her dreams. And I can't possibly ask her to do that if I don't follow mine. So I went to retrain in mime and physical theatre and clowning at the Coq in Paris. And the rest, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Tell me your tell me your story. Oh, the Telesale story. Well, um, I was 19 and I was on holiday from university. And I managed to get a job in with a major national insurer, but the department was called customer care. So I said, all right. Bear in mind, I had zero understanding of insurance. Right? I was 19. So I said, so what do I have to do? Oh, well, basically, you work in the overflow room. So when our insurance consultants are too busy, the calls will come to you. And all you need to do is say, we're really sorry, we can't get a consultant to you right now. Can we take your details? And someone will call you back within the hour, right? Okay, fine, I can do that. It's quite robotic. But the problem was, well, you were generating more callbacks and they had consultants to call those people back, right? So then the same people would come back through to us and you'd give the same spiel. And they say, you told me this an hour ago and no one's called me back. So I had this one guy, right? <laughs> and obviously you were meant to stick to a, you know, a very apologetic sir, Madam Barber. But this one guy, very posh, and he said to me, customer care, customer care, more like customer don't fucking care. And I just laughed. I just couldn't not laugh at that. Like, he really made me laugh. And he, oh, you think that's funny, do you? And he just got worse and worse and worse. But it was the best day I had in that job. That was the funniest day I had in that job. And if he's listening, thank you for losing your temper because you really made me laugh that day. Brilliant. Can I tell you a story about 42nd Street then? Oh, yeah, please. Always. I love that. I love that. So I was uh, an usher on 42nd Street. And we had big, big brochures and they were red with, you know, the numbers, 42nd Street on it. And I sold a programme to these American, American couple in at the beginning of the show. And we ha happened to have a chat. Oh, gee, it's lovely to be here. And, you know, wow, I'm really looking forward to this show. And they came out at the interval and they found me and they went, but you know what? It's not a bit how we imagined cats would be. Oh, and, and I went, what? <laughs> <laughs> you've got a brochure. You've you've just been in yeah. secretary. What I realised later, after they'd got quite upset and cross, was that Fitteral Drury Lane is in Catherine Street, but what was then called the New London Theatre was on Drury Lane. Uh... So they thought they were going to the New London Theatre on Drury Lane, and because in America and New York, you have you know Forty Second Street, Forty Third Street, Forty Fourth Street. They had just imagined. They assumed that was the address on yes. the program and not the name yes. of the show. Yeah. Wow. What are the chances? Isn't it brilliant? <laughs> so, how's that possible? But it's a bit like you. You know, those those stories stick with you, don't they? Because yeah, they're hilarious. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that's great. Yeah. <laughs> and what's the story that you were an inspiration for Bubble on Abfab? 
Oh, yes. Is that true? Should I ask me? Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Okay. I think it stuck with me because my my sister, uh, who's a couple of years older than me, some of her friends used to call her Bubble. Ah, okay. Okay. So uh, before I was Dania, my name was Bubble. Uh, And my maiden name is Lodge. So Bubble Lodge was my name. I've been there on holiday. It sounds like a resort, doesn't it? (laughs) Where did you stay? Bubble Lodge. Yeah. Anyway. So I was the general manager of the Shaftesbury Theatre and French and Saunders were doing their, I think it was, they did a a live, I think it was French and Saunders live and they were with Raw Sex, who was the the band. Oh yeah. Yeah. And um, I went in to introduce myself and to welcome them to the theatre and they'd sort of just arrived and I knocked on the door and I was really nervous. I was only in my early twenties and I was a bit starstruck and I went in and I, probably said very little other than oh hello nice welcome welcome my name's Bubble Lodge uh, and you're really welcome I'm the general manager here and please let me know if you need anything and one of them turned to the other and said hmm Bubble now there's a name now I didn't think anything of it other than it was just yeah okay that's what they said to me so I remembered it because I was such an admirer of theirs (laughs) and then you know, a little while later, and I'm still called Bubble, and Ab Fab comes out. So I may not be the inspiration because I've never <laughs> asked them. That was my next question. Yeah, I've never asked them. I hope they're listening and then they can tell us. I would love that. Yeah. So then why did you change? Why did you decide to call yourself Dania? Yeah, when did the bubble burst? Yeah, when did I the bubble that. burst? So it was after. Sophie was born and I went to uh, Lecoq and I thought I'm I'm sort of hiding in this bubble you know Uh, and I need to step out of it and I need to claim something so I when I went to Lecoq I peroxide blonded my hair it was quite dark at the time cut it all very very short and I thought right I'm going to change my name and I changed it to Becky Love uh, you might have to edit this out, but it's a bit of a prostitute's name, isn't it? <laughs> Becky Love. Um, I, think we, I think we say sex worker these days. Don't a we? sex worker. Yeah. 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 And I lived on Rue Saint-Denis. Um, so, you know, it was perfect for there. Um, and my husband loved it because whenever he came over to Paris, everyone used to say, hey, bonjour, Monsieur Love. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so he never wanted me to change it. But uh, it lasted about a year and a half, uh, two years. And I just thought, I, this this I just doesn't work. And I don't know if I, either of you have changed your names, but it really has a big impact. It has a massive impact. I've, I've written a, a play about it. Um, and then, so when I came back, I just knew that I couldn't be Becky Love. But I thought, I, I can't keep changing my name. This is, <laughs> this is really bonkers. So I just sat with it for a while. And then one day I was talking to a friend, let's say, you know, like we're talking to each other and Natalie, you were in one place and I was in another. And we just threw names back and forth at each other. And it's a fantastic thing to do. It's a great game to play because different names evoke different responses in you. So some of them made me laugh a bit like you're you're very angry, man. Yeah. And some of them made me cry and some of them made me, you know, go, oh, no, what's that? And we did it back and forth. And then I just said, Dania. 
and I'd never heard the name before because we made up loads of names and really had a great giggle. And she said, oh, is that spelt D-A-N-I-A? And I said, no, no, it's spelt with a Y. Yeah. So, God, I'm terrible. I'm really revealing things today. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, as you're on that vibe, do you mind sharing your original name with us? What was your birth name? Oh, really? Yeah, just I want to because I want to chart it. You see, from there to Dania Miller. Okay, so I was christened Dawn, right? Dawn Andrea, and I I could I couldn't say it. I couldn't say the word. I, I hated the word, which was where bubble came from. I went right. to uni. Yeah. On my first day at uni, it was drama, and we were playing a drama game, and we had to throw our names around, and they said something like "Oh Dawn," and I went yeah. um, "Bubble." And I went, pardon? And I said, it's Bubble. I'm called Bubble. And uh, we were throwing the ball and somebody threw the ball to me. And you had to say, you know, so Dania to Natalie or Mm -hmm. Dania to Phil. Right. Then you'd go Phil to Bubble. Okay. And I dropped the ball over and over again because they would go, you know, Natalie to Bubble or Phil to Bubble. And I'd (laughs) forgotten. That you were Bubble. That I was Bubble. (laughs) That's how it started. What was it about Dawn that you disliked so much? <sighs> Single you know, syllable. Yeah. Maybe that's what I didn't like. Maybe I wanted a nickname. Maybe I've always wanted a nickname. And and the the thing that I think is rather marvellous is that Dan in Slovene means daybreak. So I've actually, without knowing it. Oh, you've gone back to Dawn? Yeah. Wow. It's a bit Twilight experience, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Do you know what? We're having such a nice time with you, aren't we, Nat, that we've done about 35 minutes. We haven't got you to read the book. We've barely (laughs) said what the book's about. We can only apologise for that. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as we've enjoyed Gabby and Hunter Daniel so far. Well, the book is what it says on the title. It's Seven Secrets of Spontaneous Storytelling. And you use a fictitious family through which to imbue these secrets. That's pretty much all we need to know before we get started. Which Where do we joining it for your little reading? Which bit are you going to read for us? So I picked up two little bits, um, one at the very beginning where Adam, who's the father, is finding it a struggle to have three young children. And he comes downstairs and they're playing together and he comes in and everything starts to change. The children's noises escalated. Tommy pushed Luca away as his young brother tried to add building blocks to the tower. Maria began to cry again as her mum gently picked her up and carried her over to the sofa. Luca bit Tommy on the leg as Adam, coffee in hand, walked back into the sitting room. Tommy screamed. Adam shouted at Tommy again, don't hit your brother. His next sudden announcement cut through the noise. I'm going down to the site to check the tarpaulins. This wind's fierce and I'm not sure they've tied it off securely enough. I'll be back later. The children were suddenly silent as Adam downed his coffee and slammed his mug on the table. Please don't, Adam. Dorinka put Maria down on the sofa as she stood to move towards him, trying to put her arms around his waist. She whispered so the children wouldn't hear. Let Sai or one of the others go, please. But he removed her arms from him, his eyes steely, and her voice rose. Not again. I need your help. It's not fair. Play with the children. It's Saturday. Dorinka called after him as he went to collect his boots. You're always at work. 
And then, if I may, of I'll course. read a section after he's met with Dorothy, who is our wise woman who shares the secrets. Is that all right if I do that? Always. Brilliant. You're so lovely. It was the start of another week. Adam was sitting in the corner of the temporary porter cabin, eating his elevenses, cheese and pickle sandwich and homemade pork pie from Acorn Farm shop. He was thinking about the kids and how since he'd started to play games with them, their screaming and fighting had diminished. Dorothy had made him aware of how much influence he had on the mood of his family. The only thing you can change in a child under seven is their environment, she had told him. This concept had played around in his mind over and again. He was wrestling with it, disagreeing with it, testing it. Although he didn't spend much time with them, particularly during the week, Luca was constantly looking for the treasure since Adam had played the Aladdin's cave game in the supermarket. And it only took a small prompt from Tommy at bedtime for them to make up a story together. He was chuffed with himself telling a tale about the brightest star cluster, the Pallades, although Tommy had helped quite a lot. He didn't find it easy, but he was getting better at it all the time. Dorothy had said to him, imagination is like a muscle. The more you use it, the stronger it becomes. This had stimulated his curiosity. He smiled at the memory of Luca pointing to a piece of thread on the carpet one morning as he helped his son get dressed. Luca had called out gleefully, Look, Dada, he's since he went to see Bida. Before meeting Dorothy, Adam would have told Luca it was a piece of fluff, but instead he responded, Oh, yes, Incy Wincy Spider lives in Babaka's big old silver teapot. He's climbed up and out of the spout to search for a fly to take back to his family to eat their breakfast. Luca was delighted. Tell me more about Bida, Dada. It was over two months since he'd met Dorothy, yet the effects of her secrets on his family was evident. I love it. So good. And um, I wanted to kind of talk a bit about the confidence. And there's kind of those sort of two thoughts here. The first one is that when I was reading your book and talking to you as well, it's funny, isn't it, how it's become the way that we talk in society, if we start to say something and somebody would say like, oh, stop being so childish, like childish is a bad word. I feel like we need to reframe that. How does that happen? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I wonder if there's a distinction between childish and childlike. Mm. So childish might be that we don't understand, we don't comprehend. It is that first state that we have. Whereas childlike maybe is about awe and wonder. You know, when you're three, I mean, your son who's four, mm. he's only seen the snowdrops push up through the ground three times. He won't yeah. remember the first three times. So for him, it's the most amazing thing, isn't it? Yeah. Whereas for us, we can get terribly blasé because we know, we know it's coming and we can still go, oh, I love snowdrops, but it's not a big deal. And how do we hold on to that childlike quality of wonder? And imagination can help us do that. I mean, play is so powerful, isn't it? 
I don't know. It's a really, it's really, um, it's, it's an interesting distinction you make and it's important mm. that we don't lose it. When I had kids, uh, somebody at work said to me, all you need to know about having children is that invariably the 10th time a child does something, it's much better than the previous nine. Whereas as an adult, the 10th time we do, it isn't, even if it's something super exciting, it's not, it's not as good as the first time. But with a kid, the 10th time is better. Can I go on the slide again, Dad? We've well, just done it nine times. Yeah, but this time's going to be immense. Yeah. Whereas with us, it's like, I'm going to LA. Have you been before? Yeah, I've been a couple of times before. And your voice automatically descends, even though going to LA is a wonder. How interesting is that? And and it's that thing of, uh, they learn through repetition, don't they? Yeah. So when we go, you cannot possibly have this story again. Oh, what God. they're doing is they are... <laughs> They are really learning so much in so many different ways about language, about the, the world, about how people relate to each other, all the layers that they learn. And I realised when I went to Paris, I didn't know French uh, very well. I, you know, terrible schoolgirls French. Mm, mm. So what happened for me was I had to listen with all of me. I had to listen with my heart to understand what was saying. But what I also realised was I would repeat something over and over and over again. So I used to go down the street going, um, you know, whatever it was, please could you tell me where? I didn't need to know where anything was. I just had to try and say those words. So going down that slide, it's a bit like science, isn't it? They're learning that if you're at the top of the slide, you descend. And that if you climb back up, you can descend again. They're, they're scientists, aren't they? <laughs> um, yeah. There's also so with each of your each of your chapters, so you you tell this fictional story about the family and about the wise woman Dorothy who comes and imparts the the secrets of storytelling, and then at the end of each chapter, you have a recap of the the tools that we use to unlock those secrets, as well as some additional reading. And the chapter on confidence, I really liked this phrase that struck that stuck with me, where you wrote in your kind of did you know. Bits. And actually, there's another bit. I didn't know that uh, kids up to the age of 10, which you've got as a scientific fact in your book, uh, that smell is their strongest sense, uh, sense as opposed to anything else. So that's why they associate so many things with smell. That's amazing. Um, but the one I wanted to ask you about specifically now was that you say, we tend to judge the confidence of others by their behaviours, whilst we judge our own by how we feel. In this way, we are biased in how we interpret other people's confidence. And I think that sort of really struck me because as an adult, when you're trying to do story, you know, if I, if I was going to try and implement any of this, I would feel so embarrassed and so awkward. And it's really hard to get over yourself because I'm conscious of what I'm feeling as opposed to what I'm putting out there. And just one of those phrases that really struck with me, I was like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. It's kind of makes so much sense when you put it like that, but I hadn't quite realized that. And it links back with what Phil's saying about childish, that we, we can feel childish, whereas what we might be displaying is childlike. Mm -hmm. And therefore connecting with the child and having fun and playing. And that's what we might see in somebody else, you know, that, that they have a childlike quality, whereas we might feel childish. Yeah. And we put a lot of store by bookish intelligence, don't we? Mm. People who are learned in a certain way. It's almost like we want everyone to go down those same routes because those have credit, those have status. 
That's why if you're deep. posh, you can get away with being thick. Yeah. Yeah. And and is that just because your accent is that is that something to do with the fact that it's something like I don't know what the statistic is, but it's something like we decide on somebody. Is it ninety five percent what they look like, and then oh no, I'm not very good at maths. Maybe eighty something, eighty something percent of what we look like, then how we speak, and then it's something like six or seven percent of what we say. Mm. Is that what it, is that what it is then? I think it is, and I think it comes from um, Britain's history as well. Yeah, where invariably those in charge spoke very well. Thank you very much. Yeah, and so if you can affect that accent, then even if what you're saying lacks fundamental basic intelligence, it sounds like that chap awfully knows what he's talking about. Very and then good. Before you know it, you're running a country. Oh my God! Don't go! Don't go down that <laughs> <Yeah>. road. <laughs> it's terrifying. It is yeah. terrifying. Yeah. Can I? Can I ask you then? Going back to this book, before we would get ourselves cancelled. <laughs> Uh, are you Dorothy? Oh, I'd love to be Dorothy. I um, think you are. Having oh, met you for the best part of an hour now and having read the book, you almost certainly are Dorothy. Were you well, Dorothy when you were writing it? That's the question. You know what? I think Dorothy is potentially the wisdom that's inside all of us. And it's just about drawing that out and us remembering. I always think of it as we've got this huge sack in front of us as parents, as educators, you know, as adults. And we just have to rummage a bit to remember. And I hope what my book does is just let people rummage and go, ah, oh, yes, I, oh yeah. And I don't do it quite like that, but I do it this way. So I'd love to be Dorothy. I did get a message from somebody who said to me, you're my Dorothy, <laughs> um, after they'd seen the show and read the book. But I sometimes feel like I, you know, I relate to Dorinka as well, but I also really get Adam, you know, that idea that uh, the, the father who hasn't had good parenting and therefore isn't sure how to parent, he just gets cross uh, and, and he loses his temper and then he feels terrible and and he berates himself. There's a lot about Adam that that's underneath the surface. You know, and I and I was really trying not to play into those cliches, um, but I am, I am from Yorkshire. <laughs> I, 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 there were quite a lot of those cliches as I grew up. Yeah, I'd I, I'm going to take that, Phil. I, I, I'm going to take that. I don't. I wasn't Dorothy as I was writing it. I think Dorothy is the wise women who are in and around my life. Some wise men too, who who gave me so much. But think about all the knowledge that you've accrued now. It feels to me like you're doing the thing that you and Natalie were just discussing where your your feelings are impinging your own confidence. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. What I also like about the way that you tell this story too is how you try lots of different things. So in, in there's you know, something will happen in the story or one of the kids will get frustrated and act out or be sad about something. And you don't just give one way to try and help that you give various tools which I thought was really interesting as well because often we'll sort of we'll try one thing and you know if, if a one of our kids or whoever a friend comes up and you, you you just kind of you go to one thing and actually everyone's different and the way that they're going to help navigate the world or some really difficult horrific things that are happening in the world you kind of have to find the the way to to help retell that story for each individual person and you know, I know that that's a way that you've used storytelling to try and really help have difficult conversations with 
with children and adults as well is that a real kind of key point that you want to get across too yes I I I think it it's possibly part of me as a person that that I feel that there are different ways that we learn and so I suppose as I was raising um Luke and Sophie I made lots of mistakes and it was that thing of trying different things and and gathering different information but I think it also goes back to I believe in unicorns which as you said depicts scenes of war and it when we first created it 10 years ago um it had a certain resonance but taking it out this time and I've just come back from a a a UK tour and I'm about to take it across to Asia is that it has real pertinence right now because of the wars that are going on. And some parents have come up afterwards and said, gosh, that is really tough and painful. And, and they've cried. Um, adults who've come on their own without children who've said, this isn't really for children, this is this is for all of us. But also parents who've, who've questioned, is this right for my six-year-old? And I, again, it's one of those questions, not for me to put down quickly, because it's every child is different, every adult is different, but for us to wrestle with, but is it that art, books or theater or you know dance, music, do they allow us to explore these themes and explore what's going on in the world in a safe environment? Because in Michael Mapurgo's books, he doesn't shy away from death and from destruction but he does bring us back safely. And that's what we felt in the show, that we didn't want to sugarcoat it because war isn't something you can sugarcoat. And the children are seeing it all around them, either in arguments at home, which is a war of its, in its own way, or, you know, on the, on the macro level. And is this a way for us to process it, to talk to our young children about it? And to give them some hope, to give yeah. us all a bit of hope. I think it is for sure. And I think just that that fact of having it parallel, so one thing removed, it's ridiculous. I think when people think, oh, you know, I don't want my kid knowing that. It's like I'm pretty much guaranteed your kid's already heard it somewhere else and just hasn't had a way to cope with it or process yes. it or talk about it. So it's it's happening. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's about yeah. how you guide it. And that was a, yeah, a lovely phrase you used about bringing them home safely. Um, Natalie mentioned the uh, the structure of the book. So you get a bit of narrative story and then you get a kind of did you know section where you saw some of the claims that you made, which I think is, as both working journalists, that's vitally important to us as well. I hate reading stuff that's unsourced. And you want, well, is that just the author telling us that or is that actually, a, you know, established fact? And then you've got some further reading in some of these chapters and there's also some games. So given the structure, when you sat down to write this, who were you aiming the book at? Parents, grandparents, teachers, librarians, aunties and uncles, you know, people who have a connection with young people, children in their life, who want to make a connection with those children that I think can last a lifetime. So the stories that you tell to your son now will stay with him forever. Not necessarily what you've said. That's that's the thing. We, it doesn't matter whether they're silly or sane or anywhere in between. It's it's the connection that we make that really, really matters, isn't it? 
I'd love to go into every family everywhere and share these stories um, and, and, and say to them, come on, you can do it. And this is how, and this is how we can really create that contact with each other. Because all we have at the end of the day is relationship, don't we? It's true. Are you, are you done that? Am, am I done? Yeah. <laughs> and my, my next question is, I'm going to turn left without indicating. That's Daniel. fine. So, so, okay, so you ready? Right. Are you a James Bond fan? Um, not really. No, okay, I've fine. seen some of the films. Okay. Yes. So um, I was reading up on you earlier, and I thought, oh, my goodness, is this Solitaire from Live and Let Die? Now, do you know why I would th- would have thought that, or would you like me? Okay. You're so, going to have to reveal. Solitaire is played by Jane Seymour. This is a 1973 Bond film. And in it, she does tarot readings for James Bond. Yeah. And I've seen on your website that you do tarot readings. And I, I, wanted, to t- I wanted to talk to you about it because yeah. um, I feel that it's often described as being part of an occult or as uh, something that has no substance to it. So I'd like your perspective as someone who does the readings on what, what's your view and, and how much credibility can we attach to what the cards tell us. And if you did my reading now, and then if you did it again at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock and five o'clock and the cards all came up different, would it tell me yeah. the same thing? So I see, so I use the Osho Zen um, tarot deck, which is, if you like, Buddhist rather than the traditional tarot deck and I I see it as a combination of spontaneous storytelling and biography so what I'm doing is using the cards the images on the cards to share a spontaneous story of a snapshot of your life now of your question now of your biography And all I'm doing is interpreting the cards to help you to navigate this moment in time. So I don't see it as anything where I go, this is what I'm predicting. This is what's going to happen to you. What I see it as is this is what's, let's say, dancing around you at this moment in time. And this is the wisdom that comes through from, you know, ancient bit buddhism or from from the interaction that triangle we're back to the triangle you know me the cards and you and in the middle is the alchemy so i i went to a mind body spirit festival years and years ago because a friend of mine was there and i had a tarot deck that somebody had given me and i played around with them just for myself and i was in the back of the stall and i'd taken them with me she was she was the host of the stage and she was also selling her books. She's a sound healer, amazing woman, Shirley. We were in the back and we were just sort of hanging around. And I said, oh, shall I just do a tarot reading for you? Yeah, playing, play, it's all play. And we did this reading. And as I was doing it, somebody came up and said, are you doing tarot readings? And I was about to say no, when Shirley said yes. And she said, may I have a reading? So I said, well, yeah, okay. And whilst I'm doing this reading, Shirley writes out a little piece of paper for me and puts times on and puts it on her desk. And it was totally full by the end of it. And it was a three day festival or whatever. And she said, you're gonna have to come back tomorrow because I've put out tomorrow's schedule and you're already half booked. (laughs) Sometimes we don't understand everything we don't know 
what we don't know. And we don't know so much about the world. And yet we want everything to be very, very linear and scientific and fixed. And I think that tarot is a bit of a mystery. I don't know why it works. I don't know how, when I read the deck, mm. people go, oh my goodness. And it helps them. And what's the feedback been like of people come back to you after a reading? Oh, yeah. Yeah. With, over and over with, again. With what kind of stories? I mean, I don't need details, but so, you know, kind of. What kind of so It's a lot of it is to do with them just understanding a situation better. So I think maybe the most profound one was that there was a, a woman who was having terrible, terrible clashes with her husband and she was about to walk. And she said, I just don't, I don't know. I just don't know how to deal with this. And I said, well, come on then, let's, let's just do a reading. And I don't know, five years later, they're still together. Um, and it wasn't the reading that's kept them together. It was just giving her a pause to understand, not on a local level, but just on a deeper level, what might have been going on between them. Um, and it's a bit like storytelling. I just offer it as a gift and I'm the conduit. And if I can do that, I tell the story the way I see it. And you take from it in whatever way you take from it. But I think it's a, you say in the book as well that, again, one of the various tools that you present is just that notion of if you're you know in a car with somebody, if you're walking side by side, parallel to somebody, it's easier to have a, a difficult conversation that way than forcefully face to face, which somehow feels more combative. And, you know, I can kind of absolutely see that with the way you're talking about tarot is it actually it's just using that it's a tool to unlock in whatever way what people know they kind of need to explore or say, but they they sort of need that prompt, that prop yeah. to act it out for them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that we have the wisdom inside of us. And often when we ask a question, we're just searching for the person to give us the answer that we're waiting to hear. So we can ask the person over and over again, can't we? We can ask different people, what do you think? Yeah. Should I go on holiday? Should I do this? Should I do that? And it isn't until the person says what we are waiting to hear that we go, yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. That's, that's what I'm going to do. You're right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you know, um, Daniel, one of the first piece of advice my dad gave me, which relates to that, which I still hold true to this day, is he said, there's no such thing as a hard decision. He said, the hardest thing is executing the decision you've already made. Oh. And I think he's right. And to go back to your previous exam, you know, should I go on holiday? Should I do this? Should I do that? I could ask you or Natalie, but in my gut, I already know what I want to do, but I haven't got yeah. the confidence to execute it. And then yes. I ask you, and one of you goes, yeah, you should definitely do that. And then I go, okay, I'll do that. I'm going to do it because you've been given some sort of permission. Yeah. But actually the, the original idea, the actual decision to be executed is already in your gut. Yeah. And I think that's true. That's why I think, go back to Dorothy, she's the wisdom inside of us. Mm. She is what we know. But there's so much coming at us, telling us we should parent this way or we should teach this way or we should do that. How can we find our own authentic voice? And in storytelling, when I train adults in storytelling, what we're looking for is, is their unique voice. And... It takes time because we imitate first. I remember when I first was sharing stories with children, I talked like this and I was doing this and I was, you know, you can't see me, but I was doing all these lovely little gestures and things. And I was basically imitating 
my daughter's kindergarten teacher, who I thought was a phenomenal <laughs> um, storyteller, right? But but that was because it was who she was, and I was yeah. just imitating it. And then slowly, slowly, I start to get my own voice. And and I have to say that my director Danny Parr really um, helped me with that because we've done a number of shows together, and she'll say. Okay, drop the storyteller voice. Drop the storyteller voice. Right, start again, so that I don't go into, uh, you know, my breathiness or my. And then I had a wonderful voice coach, Gemma, who who really taught me a lot about how to embody my voice in a better way when I was on stage. My movement coach, Jenny, who who gets me to to walk you know, through the crowds in a really powerful way and then to walk through the crowds in a diminished way so that you can create this magic through your voice and through your body that you can then share on stage. Or... You know what you'd love? I'll send them to you um, years ago. Armstrong and Miller, did you see these, Nat? They did a series of sketches where they're Blue Peter presenters and they're having to apologise for some bad behaviour that one of them has done. I'm going to write and this down. <laughs> and and they do it in that kind of blue Peter voice. So they say, uh, now, before we sign off tonight, you may have noticed in the papers, there's been some stories about all three of us from this show. And then one of them said, that's right. Yes, we went out the other evening, didn't we, in London's West End? And we had some drinks and those drinks made us do some silly things. And as we were doing those silly things without our clothes on, a member of the press got our photographs. And for that, we're very sorry. And they do it in this <laughs> tone of voice that you just described. It's really, I'll, I'll ping them to you. It's really funny. Yes. Yeah, please do. So I've, I've got I've got that one to watch, but I've also got to watch Solitaire, haven't I? You need to watch Live and Let Die. Yeah, Roger <laughs> Moore's first die. outing as 007. Uh, yeah. It's good. It's really good. It's, it's 50 years old, but it's still really good. I, I definitely watched it, but I don't remember it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Dania, I feel like we could monopolize your time for yeah, ages, 100%. but you have things to do. Um, so just before we say bye, can you recommend some other things for people to watch or read or listen to? Oh, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I when I was thinking about this, I I realize again, uh, being dyslexic, books have always been a challenge. So my daughter would punish me early on. Uh, for never coming out of the eight to 12 year old um, section in Waterstones, you know, because I just, those were the books that I loved and still love. But isn't uh, that silly though, how we still think that as adults? It's like, why can't we read those books? They're great, so many of them. Great books, they are with really good plots, absolutely. Um, so I'm still there, I'm still in the um, under 12 section, wherever those are in, in the bookshop. Um, but I was invited to a graphic novel book club and that opened my eyes. We've read things from, oh, I don't know, uh, The Diary of Anne Frank to um, Trashed by Durf, Durf Back Durf, love that name, um, Alt Altitude, The House. Yeah, loads and loads of brilliant, brilliant graphic novels. And when I was thinking about which one might be my favourite, I really, really enjoyed Giraffes on Horseback Salad which is a meeting between um, Salvador Dali and the Marx Brothers. It's bonkers. I loved that. And and if if I can't have Kenzuke's Kingdom, Michael Mopurgo and Listen to the Moon and those, then it would be the 100-year-old man who climbed out of the window and disappeared. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I loved. But 
graphic novels. I, I, I could name hundreds of them. So that giraffes one, giraffes on horseback salad. Yeah. It's Josh Frank, Tim Heidecker, and Manuela Patega. And you can find that. I've just found that quite easily on the internet. You, you better find that. Yeah. Brilliant. So we can dive into those. Um, uh, now, it's not often we do this, but I want to do it on this occasion. I'm just going to talk about you for a second as if you're not here. Do you feel, Natalie, do you feel calmer after the last hour that we've just spent with yeah. Daniel? Because I feel like this strange sense of calm. Like, and I don't normally do this kind of thing. But I really do feel, I don't know, there's an aura about you and, and a way in which you convey storytelling that's made me a lot calmer than I was before we started the Zoom. So thank you. Am I, am I allowed to be here now? Yeah, yeah, yeah you can be here now. <laughs> You're back in the room. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, do you know, it's been an absolute pleasure and I'm delighted and, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. It's been a lovely conversation. So that's Daniel Miller in just over an hour. What a delightful human being to spend some time with. Um, I so loved that. And I know that it was one of those ones where you were like, who's this person? Like, why are we doing this one? But I think I won you round, Phil. Oh, she's utterly enchanting. I was completely enchanted by her. And I really hope that the book finds a wider audience uh, because it is a terrific book. Uh, but more so, there's magic in it. And um, she felt very magical when we were speaking to her. I felt like I could have done another two hours with her. Yeah. And, um, do you know, so we're recording this just before Christmas. This week I went to a school to talk to some of their 11, 12-year-olds about the power of reading. Mm. And um, it's interesting that Daniel was recommending some graphic novels there because a lot of the kids there were into graphic novels. And when I asked the teacher afterwards why that was, he said that some of them, although they might appear to be or might indeed be 14 or 15 or 16, their reading age is a lot lower. Their reading age is maybe nine or ten. And so the graphic novels are a good gateway into full novel because the pictures break up the prose. And I know it sounds really obvious, but until you state that. So when I asked these kids what they've been reading, the, the book that kept coming up was Dogman yeah. uh, by Dav Pilkey. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but... Um, yeah written and illustrated by Dav Pilkey and and this Dogman book, there's a series of them, I think, but they all love that. Yeah, my kids have gone through Dogman. Um, right. Yeah, it's it's great. It's a really good story. And I think it's, it's one of those things that probably doesn't get spoken about enough because I grew up reading comics, like my entire, like quite old teenage, really. I was still getting, when did Wizard and Chips stop? Like Wizard and Chips was my go-to. I love wow. that comic. Yeah. See, isn't that funny because, I know we're the same age, but I think Wither and Chips is one of those references that makes me think you're older than you are. Do you know what I mean? Because it, <laughs> it, it, I almost think like, do you know what my memory of Wither and Chips is? Did you have wet play at your school? So, I always get confused with wet play because I know when kids talk about it now, I'm never yeah. quite sure if wet play is when you have to play inside because it's raining outside. That's it. It was okay. at my school, that one. If you're, or if you're playing with like water and physically getting No, soaked. it's when it's thrown down and you've got to play inside mm. and basically they've taken donations from parents. And mostly it was Wizard and Chips or Beano, but the occasional copy of the Sun newspaper would have found its way into the school <laughs> classroom. And then inevitably one of the kids would see page three mm. and then there'd be this big kerfuffle oh, in the, the classroom. bad old days. As someone shouted out, rude lady, rude lady. Like this and everyone would crowd around this table to see the rude lady with her clothes but isn't off. that interesting though that that's your recollection that it's, rude lady is what yeah, comes to mind yeah, yeah. it's like uh no misogynistic newspaper owners for putting that lady in that position anyway we hadn't learned exploitation at nine <laughs> well i think some people had they were just maybe ignoring it anyway on the graphic novel front as well and um, one of the books that 
If you're looking for recommendations to get to any people in your life, or if you just want to give it a try, there's an incredible graphic novel retelling of Little Women. Um, and I got this a few years ago for my daughter, and it's called Meg, Joe, Beth and Amy. It's by Ray, which is spelled R-E-Y, Terciero, T-E-R-C-I-E-R-O, and Brie Indigo. And it is just delightful. It's kind of a modern day retelling of that classic book. She just like loved it. I've read it. I so enjoyed it as well. So yeah, graphic novels are great. I think we bought some Brie Indigo back from France last time we went camping. <laughs> You're so funny.